0: This is the Limita Podcast, and I'm your host, John Fukuda. If you've been following the podcast, you know we're focused on human-centered digital transformation and how operationalizing research, insights, and design can aid in digital product and service transformation work at scale. People who lead and execute these transformations are charged with managing organizational learning and change to maintain a currency of skills, knowledge, and practice. To deliver at an ever-increasing rate of change. This is why you may be seeing more articles and reports by Forbes, McKinsey, Gartner, and other industry analysts on upskilling and continuous learning as critical success factors for organizations, particularly as we're faced with a higher demand for digital products and services. Our guest today is Julie Dirksen, learning and strategy consultant or instructional design strategist. Julie has authored two books, Design for How People Learn, One of the best-selling books on learning design, and her new book, Talk to the Elephant, Design Learning for Behavior Change. As a learning strategy consultant, she focuses on incorporating behavioral science into learning interventions. Her MS degree is in Instructional Systems Technology from Indiana University, and she has been an adjunct faculty member at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and is a Learning Guild Guild Guildmaster. She's happiest when she gets to learn something new, and you can find her at usablelearning.com. Julie, thanks for coming to talk with us today, and welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So, I thought we'd start off by having our listeners learn a little bit about your career history and what brought you to the work you're doing today.
1: Yeah, so I, as as you mentioned, I kind of go by learning strategist or instructional designer, things like that. Instructional designer is a role that you you tell people that at a party or something, and they kind of give you the quizzical head tilt of like, what what is that actually? But typically, it's the people responsible for thinking about how do you design good learning experiences. I work mostly with adults, mostly workplace, although I've spent some time over in higher education. And it's really this question of how do we create a good learning experience for people and what do we need to bring over from things like oh, educational psychology and, you know, other kind of design modalities to create good learning experiences. And and people think it's not that hard because I think, you know, when you see it, you, you know if it a mm-hmm. good class or not a good class mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. But actually kind of trying to construct that or build good learning experiences for people, it's it's one of those that's more complicated than than it seems. And I think anybody in user experience has had the, the familiarity of trying to explain what they do to people, you know, it sort of happens over in learning design too. I have been doing this oh gosh I think I did my first kind of digital online learning thing in the Future Splash 2 player which was pre which was the forerunner for Flash and like sometime in the early 90s. So, basically, I'm old and I've been doing this for a long time. But I also got interested early on in my career. I was interested in the training and the learning piece, but I also got very interested in things like, we weren't calling it user experience yet, it was usability engineering or Mm human-computer interaction, because fundamentally, we're sort of concerned with the same thing, which is how do we help people do stuff You know, whether it's some function of their job or some function of them working with a product or, you know, anything like that. How do we help people? My my old boss used to talk about how do we help people do the right thing at the right time? And Mm -hmm. it could be something where some kind of educational experience is going to help them if, you know, if it's part of their job, it could be job training. If it's part of them executing something in a system, it could be something that's really more down to what's the user experience and how well have we adapted the interface and and those kinds of things. And when Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school, I kind of had spent about half of my time over in what was library and information science at the time doing HCI curriculum, because like I said, we didn't we weren't really calling it UX at that point. So I've always kind of had a little bit of a foot over in the user experience space. Although I don't claim particular expertise in that. I mean, that's my primary area is over on the learning design side, but it's kind of, you know, they're kind of flip sides of the coin, right? Like I, Very much remember projects like I I try not to do any software training anymore. Like it's not my favorite thing to do. Learning design for, but I've certainly done plenty of it over the years. And there would be this moment where you'd be like, okay, well, we need to create the learning experience that teaches them how to enter the you know medication error record. And so how do they add a new record? Well, they have to click underneath all of these things in that kind of gray area. And if they double click, then it brings up this option. And then they click the plus sign, but it's not labeled. (laughs) And I'm like, you really can't just put a button that says create new record? Really? We're going to teach them how to like magically figure out how to make the, the mystical gray area do the thing. Yep. We can't just put a button there, you know, like, so The
0: level of assumption that goes yeah, into product right. design. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> when there's bad UX UI kinds of things, a lot of times it lands in the person who's designing the learning experience for how to use the new system. A lot of times that problem gets handed to them to try to mm-hmm. just teach people how to navigate a system. Jared Spool wrote a piece years ago about how they should invest more in UX and take some of those rich training budgets and And his point was good, but I was like, oh, rich training budgets, that's cute. Yeah, we don't necessarily have those, you know, but it is kind of this balance. So, where does the information need to live to support people's performance? If it needs to sit in somebody's head, you know, then it's kind of the training problem. If we can embed it in the system and make things easier and better to use so that we don't really need nearly as much training, Mm -hmm. then that's all... You know, that's a win too. So I I would love it if the two um, fields talk to each other a little bit more because I do think we share certain common interests, but a lot of times they're divided. Uh, So a lot of what I've spent a big part of Oh, gosh, probably the early 2000s after I was done with graduate school was doing presentations and workshops on bringing more UX practice into learning design. Mm-hmm. We now have this learning experience designer seen that job title, and I'm fine with it as long as it's accompanied by some of the practices, whether it's user research or design prototyping or user testing that I think are really fundamental in the user experience world. If we can bring more of that over into learning design, I think that's I think that's good for everybody. But these are some of the things that we look at. And one of the big question marks and what the new book is, well, so my first book was, hey, you're a good customer service rep. We're going to let you train the other customer service reps. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever been asked to, like, teach a thing that you have a lot of expertise in to somebody else, you know an enormous amount about your topic, but you don't necessarily know how do we turn that into a good learning experience for other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, that's very much the audience for the first book I did, Design Design for How People Learn, which was really to try to give somebody a quick and accessible book to just get enough of the learning science and design so you could make good choices about about learning experiences. Uh, And then the new book is When People Know What to Do, But They're Still Not Doing It. Mm -hmm. And kind of the origin of that one was in the mid-2000s, so maybe I need to I need to check the dates on it at some point. But around 2005, I was working on an AIDS and HIV prevention project where they were taking an in-person experience and trying to figure out how to put it online mm-hmm. in an effective way. Well, you know, by 2005, people were pretty clear on things like condom usage to prevent the spread of HIV. And now that world's gotten more complex because there's a lot of solutions. But at the time, like that message was really clear and most people had heard it. You know, most people had heard that if you want to prevent the spread of HIV, you should use condoms responsibly, all that kind of thing. And so then the question of, well, why is it still not happening as consistently as we would like? Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, I have all these tools that help me teach people things, but these people don't need to be taught that condom usage is important. They know that. So, what tools need to get brought to bear to try to help people? Where even though you know the right thing to do, you know people know they're supposed to wear their safety glasses if they're in an environment where you could have eye injuries, or people know that they mm-hmm. should save for retirement more, or people know that it's consistent exercise gap. is going to, you know, promote health and well being right. and all this kind of stuff. So, so, it's so we bridging have all the these- gap
0: between the con- like knowing something conceptually and behaving in a way that mm-hmm. demonstrates
1: the knowledge. Yeah. Absolutely. So, that's what the new book is getting into, is, is trying to pull some things out that we're learning over in behavioral science, but bring it into more into learning design, because we just went through the biggest behavior change experiment in the history of the world. And while we focused a lot on the failures, if we think about the amount of behavior that changed during the pandemic. It's remarkable. Like literally, we've never had that many people change their behaviors that fast ever, because mm-hmm. we've never had this population with this particular problem. And so we learned a lot in the process of doing that, kind of what works, what doesn't work. And there's a whole kind of discipline around behavioral science that's coming up, and you're starting to see behavioral design units and organizations and chief behavioral officers, a new job title that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so The interest that I have specifically in that is how do we bring that into something like learning design in an effective way so that we're helping people with some of those stubborn and difficult behavior change challenges that we would all like to get a little bit better at.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, you know, that pandemic was deeply impacting at everyone's sort of uh, personal life behavioral change, but also eye opening for organizations, too, as Mm -hmm. they needed to transition to a lot more digital service and product and spurred a, a lot of behavioral change organizationally as they went to hybrid models or working from home. Mm-hmm. And how do we do our digital collaborations? Uh, there was a lot of change that happened yeah. there, for sure.
1: Some of it rockier has, than others, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: definitely. I just want to learn a little bit from you. What's the most intriguing aspect of establishing learning strategy or doing instructional design for you?
1: So one of the basics for me is asking what is the gap between where they are now and where they need to be. And a lot of times we treat that gap like it's information. If I just give you this information, then everything's going to be better, right? And That is rarely the case, (laughs) you know, occasionally it is. And when it doesn't work, a lot of times the solution is to tell people louder and more emphatically Mm. that they Mm -hmm. really need to do the thing. And it's like, (sighs) so looking at what is the gap, right? Is it is it just that they don't have the information and if I can instill this information into somebody's head, you know, if we could plug them in, like in the matrix or something and upload the file, it'll all be good. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the area that's most interesting to me right now is a lot of learning is procedural, right? So software, if I need to learn how to use this piece of software, I click this, I click this, I do this, I give these options and I do this, right? Mm-hmm. So we know exactly what correct performance looks like. We have a really well-defined, and, and in certain domains, we've done a lot of work to define correct performance. We know how we want people to, you know, take blood pressure in healthcare settings, or we know how we want people to do patient admissions, or we, want, we know how we want people to do pre-flight checks if you're a flight attendant or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we have tend to do that heavy lifting in high-risk environments, Right. So, if you're working in a nuclear power plant or you're dealing with, you know, heavy equipment that could kill people if it's not handled well or things like that, we tend to Mm -hmm. have very clear, like this, 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 this procedural stuff. And so, learning procedural things, we have a good toolkit for that. We know how to teach people procedures, we know how to have them practice, we know how to evaluate it, all these kinds of things. But then, when we get into other kinds of skills, and those are, areas where there's more variability in, it could be variability in process, it could be variability in outcomes, it could be variability in a proficiency, how do we prepare people for those environments? Yeah. So, I was doing a curriculum audit for a company that was doing Lean Six Sigma training. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about that is that they tend to follow one project through, right? But when I was talking to one of the experts, and he was talking about the importance of getting a good why statement, which is kind of your thesis statement behind a Six Sigma project. And I was like, okay, so, you know, what are the subtleties of that? And he's explaining it to me. And I'm like, well, how do they know that that's not a good way? Well, he's like, you just kind of know. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so as soon as anybody tells me that, you just kind of know, I'm like, all right. So what we've got, there's a bunch of tacit knowledge in what this looks like. And There's really substantive research, mostly Anders Ericsson's, where that whole 10,000-hour thing came from, even though that's not really quite right. But he specifically looked at exposure to case examples. So, he did a lot of research with radiologists reading Mm x-rays. And if you're just seeing your patient's x-rays on a rotation, you might see... 10, 20, 30 a week or something like that. But one of the things they did is they built a database of 16,000 x-rays where they had outcomes based on it. So you could really dramatically ramp up that exposure to case examples Mm -hmm. and so see many, many more examples. So any place where we have that ambiguity, right? Oh, I was talking to a group that does, it was an NGO that does improvement science for healthcare. And so they go in and they teach people in health facilities and they work a lot in Africa and India and some other areas. They'll teach them how to set up their own little experiment within the healthcare facility and collect data. And they teach them about doing root cause analysis. And so, I'm sitting in a room with the eight or 10 experts in this process, and we're talking about methods for doing root cause analysis. And I said, okay, great. So, we can do fishbone, we can do five whys, we can do all these stuff. I'm like, how do they know when they're done? Mm-hmm. And when they can stop, when they've gotten close enough to root cause. And I swear to God, every single person in that room just looked at me, like, and they were like, well, you just kind of know. And I'm like, (laughs) great, because that's not hard to explain to new people at all. But those are the interesting ones to me, because that's the place where a specific strategy, like increasing exposure to case examples, I want to show you lots and lots of case studies. So you start to build up some understanding of like those tacit factors that lead into this being a good conclusive root cause analysis or being a good why statement, because that's vague and because a lot of learning experience are like, we'll show you an example or maybe mm-hmm. two or three when really you need to see 20 or 30. And so then the question and from a learning design point of view is, how do I get you exposed to that in an efficient manner? because I can't wait like three years for you to naturally, you know, encounter a dozen or so examples. I need to figure out how do I bring this into a learning experience where we we can iterate more quickly through some of that. So, that's an area that's really interesting to me is that we also have complex skills where the answer isn't, the same tomorrow than it is today necessarily. Right. You know, like if you're approaching a UX project and you're asking exactly what kind of user research do we need? Well, the answer is it depends. And there's a bunch of variables that are going to show up. And how do I not only teach people how to do user analysis, but how do I teach people how to make good judgments about what kind of user analysis is needed? You know, and we learn this through experience, but one of the big things in learning design is if this takes somebody three years to learn, typically, how do I get this into six months? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the – to make this more efficient because we don't have three years to upscale this person? You know, that right. those kinds of questions.
0: I wonder, uh, do you utilize things like decision trees and things like that or –
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, and I mean, you know, that's part of the conversation too, is do I need to teach you this or do I just need to give you good tools for kind of evaluating some of these decisions? And that's kind of that. That tension as well. Can I give you good guidance? You follow the steps. There's a lot of great examples from Atul Gawande's checklist manifesto. And my favorite one is they talk about APGAR scores, which is the score Mm -hmm. that they do for newborn babies to just see if they're in distress. And this is something that people would learn through experience and seeing lots of babies, but it wasn't nearly as reliable as I think it's like five things that you evaluate about a newborn baby. And it turns out that that very simple guidance provided better results than trying to grow this experience and expertise in sort of more messy human ways, but you still are going to use a balance. You still need that experience. You still need that expertise, but you can make stuff a lot more efficient. If you're doing an APGAR score, it'll tell you if we've got an infant that's in distress and needs some intervention more reliably than just people's experience with it.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how much tacit knowledge is at play in our domain-specific work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of interplay between you know what is intuition and how do you just know versus needing that body of evidence and and mm-hmm. something that's provable, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. How, how have you seen your work play a significant role in the way organizations manage change?
1: Yeah, well, you know, and. In- When I talk about the behavioral change piece, I'm not Mm -hmm. necessarily talking about say change management. That is its own whole. Area and discipline, and there's definitely overlap. Like the Venn diagram mm-hmm. on that one's got a pretty significant piece of overlap. But within organizations, obviously, if you know they're merging with another organization or they're completely revamping their work process, it seems like everybody lives in a constant state of reorganization in the orga- You know, in most companies mm-hmm. now, that is a how do I shepherd this whole audience through this change, and we're supposedly going to come out on the far end of it. Although, state of change seems to be the new normal. And that's different than the behavior change piece, which is usually fairly targeted to a specific behavior. So if I need people to enter customer records more reliably mm-hmm. or something like that, mm-hmm. that would be that would be something where we would kind of really target in on it. That said, there is this absolute, you know, kind of overlap with a lot of these things, because honestly, adaptability in the sort of volatile environment is something where we're starting to look at higher order meta skills around it right? Mm -hmm. There's a colleague of mine that does a lot of work on self-directed learning. And um, that's a consistent thing I hear in organizations when I'm talking to people about, well, what kind of behavior change would you like to see? Well, we want more self-directed learners, which unfortunately often means we we don't want to pull people off the floor to actually send them to training. We want them to just learn on their own time, which, you know, there's some issues there. But the question mark then when you have something like being a good self-directed learner, and some people are, right? you know, they, some people are curious, and they like learning new things, and they're going to seek it out and things like that. But for a lot of people, it's not as automatic as that. And Mm -hmm. so then we have to start kind of breaking down what do we think the behaviors are? Is it, Going out and seeking opportunities? Is it being able to recognize where you need upskilling? Is it being able to kind of do some kind of internal debrief on how did that go? What do I need to do differently in the future? Well, you know, those are all different things, right? Like finding good learning resources is a different thing than being able to kind of do an internal debrief, which is a different thing than being, you know. So when we look at all of these kinds of things, how do I develop some of those skills in people? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that we, know with some confidence is that change really is going to be our world right now and so helping people with some of those meta skills around managing change adaptability those kinds of things is essential at this point um we were talking before we got started about resilience yeah yeah Yeah. it's all part of it's all part of that because i mean right now the people who are telling you that they know how AI is going to change the workplace, I'm pretty sure are all just making it up. Mm. I mean, there's, there's some that have better theories than others, I'm sure. But nonetheless, like this is still such new territory. We don't know what this is going to look like. We don't know where this is all going to go. And so everybody seems to agree That using something like a large language model, a chat GPT or whatever to generate content could be amazing and helpful, but that one of the core things is people need to be able to then look at the output and evaluate it for... Accuracy for appropriateness for all of these kinds of things. And I'm like, I yeah, right. Needs you need to be able. I was trying to, I was one of those people early on who was trying to see if it would give me like research studies. And I'm like, oh look, it just makes them up. (laughs) (laughs) It does. This is fascinating. But if that's the really crucial skill is being able to evaluate and make good judgments about what a large language model is generating. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not something we can assume that people know how to do. Yeah. You know, we can't just say, hey, you should do that now and assume that they're gonna be good at it. Cause boy, I would not take that one for granted for a minute. So right.
0: I mean we've seen the level of damage that even just YouTube and, and Google searching has on people's acceptability of alternative facts and that kind of stuff and then you throw chat tp in the mix was just going to make up stuff
1: oh yeah
0: okay it can really be damaging so yeah having critical thinking as a part of your just core skill (laughs) set being able to look at something know the context and
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, make those judgments it's it's not a skill set you can easily test for either
1: so. No, no. And that's part of the challenge too, right? So I live in this whole world of learning technology. Mm-hmm. And if you spend a lot of time in learning technology, you'd believe that all content should be distributed as a short video clip, and that everything could be tested with a multiple choice test. Mm-hmm. And I would dispute both of those. <laughs> so, I mean, I there's nothing wrong with video-based content, it's a great tool. YouTube is amazing as a learning engine, but there's also not not everything is appropriate for a short video clip or for a multiple choice test.
0: Sure. Well, we've been talking a little bit about reskilling here. Reskilling is really an important topic today. We talked about it in terms of resiliency and adaptability. Mm -hmm. What are some uh, big challenges that you see that companies are running into, especially related to encouraging behavioral change as a part of reskilling process?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it too is that you see like companies with big swaths of fairly complex tasks that they need people to do, and they're just not, you know, just aren't enough people who can do the thing that's needed. And you know, how is AI going to change that? I, you know, I I can only guess, and I don't know that my guess is any better than anybody else's. Probably less good. But a friend of mine works on cloud skills as a as a thing, and there's been this sort of knowledge for quite a while that this is a big technical area with a lot of things going on and there's a genuine shortage of enough people with the right skills in order to be able to kind of operate in those environments. Now, can we do some sort of walled garden AI so that they could, you know, have have something that's helping them generate the answers to some of these problems, maybe, but the greater degrees of complexity that we're going to be in it, the more it becomes a matter of having, again, these sort of meta skills around being able to navigate and problem solve and deal with challenges. And there are some things where it's like, can you teach problem solving? Well, I, I think arguably you can teach problem solving methods Whether or not you can teach problem-solving methods and you can probably teach certain problem-solving habits, Mm -hmm. but you are going to bump into aptitude, too, in some of these things where some people are better at trying stuff and tinkering and figuring it out than others. And so, some of it is going to be how do we develop these skills in people, but some of it is going to be how do we steer people towards the things that they're well-suited to. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Yeah, and… Just thinking about, you know, AI being in the mix and you're talking about the right skills, a lot of skills aren't aren't even on the map, right? So like, how do you do the right bias mitigation? And what skill set is that? How do you do do an ethics check on AI even doing the right thing?
1: Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah.
0: And like, these are not natural skill sets that fall into anything that might be a cloud engineer or like, Mm -hmm. you know, any of those roles uh, as a traditional definition. So, um.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that comes down to learning experiences, too. Like, if Mm -hmm. you've never had anybody sort of stop and say, hey, what are the ethical ramifications of certain choices that you're making, and getting people to kind of stop and consider those kinds of things. That's very much a thing where the people who are setting some of the big picture curriculum for this and, you know, creating kind of these learning experiences, they need to be asking those questions too and and thinking about where does this show up and how do we reinforce this as we go through, right? Because there's lots of people who we can, but should we? I uh, just saw Oppenheimer finally this week, uh, he, you know, before it rolled out of theaters. And, you know, that's the ultimate, like, yes, we, can, we, we did it. What well, should we have, you know? Right. And I think that a lot of technology is facing some similar problems of, we can do all these amazing things, but should we? So, building that kind of critical facility around asking some of the ethical questions. You know, I just wrote this book on behavioral design. Well, lots of these behavior strategies can be used to manipulate people hmm. and And I know that people like Robert Cialdini has had to wrestle with that one as his career because, you know, when he wrote Influence, like the techniques are a tool and they can be used, you know, for people's benefits, but they can also be used to, you know, sell them stuff that they don't need or sign them up for things that are not helpful for them or manipulate elections, it turns out, or, you know, all sorts of things. And so having those conversations and having that be part of any curriculum that you're putting together I think is incredibly important. I don't I don't know that I get to decide. I have a chapter in the new book about designing responsibly and asking certain questions and things mm-hmm. like that. And I I thought it was super important to have it in there. I'm not sure I think I did a good enough job of really mm. you know, like it's there. It could be a whole I book promise. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It could be a whole book in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you find that there's like an ideal, I don't know, cultural climate for organizations that maybe more ready for adaptive and learning management best practices than others? Or like I said, is there anything that defines an organization to you as more ready for uh, learning management, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting thing because obviously the learning culture of different organizations is very different. You know, I mentioned that we're more likely to have proceduralized things in stuff like healthcare or airplane safety mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those are environments where w- the environment has worked very, very hard to remove error from the system. Yeah. And so when you have those environments, you have a different. Kind of learning culture around it, right? And you can do it a couple of different ways, right? You can have it be something where we have a really high compliance version. Mm-hmm. And that's what you'll see in like financial systems, right? Is we've created all this compliance regulation, and yeah. te- you know, compliance training that everybody has to do. And unfortunately, a lot of that is less about actually promoting compliant behavior or actually promoting ethical behavior and things like that, and more about legal defensibility if they get sued. Sure. So everybody's taken that course, right? Everybody's had that compliance course that you've had to take at one time or another, where you're like, "I'm never going to use this information," <laughs> but I have to sit here. and But prove it is amazing what a,
0: a what a sharp sword that the legal ramification can be.
1: Yeah, I was talking to Christian Hunt, is his name, and he wrote a book called Humanizing Rules. But he's comes from a financial compliance background, and the quote from his when I interviewed him that I used in the book was he was talking about how when you continually force people to view training that isn't applicable to them or isn't helpful or isn't relevant, you're basically training their muscle of learning how to ignore your training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, then when you do show up with something that they genuinely need, they've learned to ignore it and they've learned to kind of get through it as quickly as possible. And so, we need to be careful what we, you know, we need to be careful what we're teaching people to do with some of the training material that we're creating but you know like so it can be a heavy duty compliance environment but then you also i've also seen organizations with a really strong learning culture i was doing a bunch of workshops for google for a while and they have you know they obviously have the time that people can use to explore stuff that's of interest to them and also they have a huge kind of internal learning function googlers teach googlers yeah. where if you're interested in teaching a thing you can just you work with them and they'll provide the infrastructure for it and then you and if you're interested you can go take this class and things like that and i mean they're wealthy organizations so they can have that margin for things but also you know that they valued that and they said that that was an important thing for us to have because there's other wealthy organizations that don't do that um (laughs) but uh you know so so there's different flavors of what a strong learning organization does um airline safety is interesting one to me because of the degree to which is anti fragility a concept? Have you, have you bumped hmm. into that one? Okay. Uh- it's Nassim Taleb, who uh, was a risk analyst for like hedge funds and things like that. And he looks at risk profiles and he talks about how some organizations are fragile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one big punch and it all kind of comes tumbling yeah, down. So, like the mortgage nice. industry in 2008 was fragile or mm-hmm. the levees around New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit were fragile and the big punch, whole thing collapses, right? Right. Um Then there's robust organizations, which can take punch after punch after punch and stay standing because they've sort of made big, you know, big, thick walls around it and they've created this kind of stuff. But then he talks about anti-fragile organizations, which isn't necessarily, I mean, you know, they can have characteristics of robust, but basically they need a certain amount of abuse to get stronger. And the, the mm-hmm. most clear example of is, is somebody's immune system. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't expose somebody to any germs, their immune system stays pretty fragile. And you need sure. that kind of getting exposed to germs, getting exposed to stuff that builds it up and builds it up and builds it up. And vaccines are a way to introduce a little bit of that abuse so that it. Builds it up rather than the big disease, sure. and so airline safety is very much kind of an anti-fragile system. Which is, whenever there's an accident in the airline safety system, they immediately descend on it. There's a very rigorous process for investigating and analyzing what happened, and then changes are made to the procedures. And those changes disseminate through like the air, tr- you know, the airline safety system, like. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably quickly. Like once the change is made, I think it supposedly propagates, you know, everywhere within a month or two or something like that. But don't quote me, but it's it's nonetheless right. pretty remarkable that when they've identified a procedural change that needs to happen because of safety reasons, it, it spreads very quickly through the whole system. Right.
0: And is that that's because it's centralized at the FAA, or
1: is, yeah, is I mean that's it just... part of it, and then also just you know they have a culture where mistakes mm-hmm. can cause you yeah. know airplanes to fall out of the sky. Sure. And they have decided that in order for, I mean, decided, I guess is probably a strong word, but, it, you know, if you think about it, like we've had what flight, you know, commercial flight for a hundred years or thereabouts, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the degree of sophistication in that system in that short of time is remarkable, but nobody's going to get on an airplane and fly someplace unless it feels that safe, sure. right? Yeah. Because it is kind of a crazy thing to do. Yeah. I'm going to get it in a metal tube and I'm going to go up in the sky And so, you have to be able to, like, personally, I always have to pretend the floor is real and that there's ground underneath it, you know? (laughs) And I'm not even a particularly nervous flyer, but you don't want to mess with my illusion that the floor is actually the ground. But it's one of these things where certain systems or certain organizations, the stakes are such that the only way to get that kind of robust safety is that kind of constant improvement system. Mm -hmm. And, you know airline safety is very procedural. It's very driven by checklists and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And clearly there have been mistakes made, but really, you know, just in terms of the sheer records, but other things are less important, right? Like if I'm doing training for airlines, which I've done a decent amount of over the years, you're just going to have different standards for like drink service training for flight attendants than you are for like pilot safety checklists. And the risk profile is totally appropriate. And then if you ask people how important is it for people to have air-free performance, everybody will tell you 100% all the time. But it's not, you know, it's not 100% all the time. If you're designing interfaces for people to buy sweaters, this is not as risky as interfaces for managing issues in nuclear power plants. It's it's different. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> so. true. But like the one thing that I think we're all dealing with these days is like those types of transactional spaces are becoming a lot more common right so like where you might have walked into the store to buy that sweater now you're now you are on your phone or your
1: mm-hmm.
0: whatever and you're just clicking through and it's easy how customers can be really fickle if they have a bad experience they'll never trust that brand again or they'll mm-hmm. go somewhere else you know that yeah. Of thing. yeah so once you break someone's trust uh, it's really mm-hmm. hard to build it back I guess is where I was going with that Yeah. Um,
1: Well, and and trust is a, trust is a big issue in learning environments too. You know, like I need you to trust that this information is accurate. I need you to trust that I'm not wasting your time. I need you to trust that I understand what you care about as a learner. There's a whole slew of ways, like people always want to know how to make more engaging learning, but I think they're almost always picturing like, we're going to do cool animations. We're going to make this a really, you know, kind of groovy video. Right. And like, you know, you don't need any of that if people trust that you know what their pain points are, that you've created learning that's going to help them with it, and that it's going to be relevant to the job that they need to do. Like, right. then it doesn't have to be – it doesn't have to have dancing cats and unicorns. It can just be <laughs> useful. I mean, you know, I I go out on YouTube anytime I have a home repair thing. I don't care if it's shiny production values. I just want somebody to tell me how to replace that, like, replace the washer on the outside, you know, hose faucet or something like that. Sure.
0: Well, speaking about trust as a, like a key challenge, what what are some of the other key challenges that you run into in implementing uh, learning strategies?
1: You know, one of the biggest problems uh, I think any instructional designer would tell you, and I'm sure that you've you know encountered similar stuff like this in other formats of design. But you get these experts who ha- know so much about their topic, mm-hmm. and they just you know they want to share it all right they want they want to like here let me give you everything that i know because it took me so much effort and time to learn it and and can't we just tell them and so it's this cognitive overload and mm. trying to convince people that you can't just take all this knowledge and convey it in like a week long online seminar or something like that yeah. i've started asking whenever i'm talking to a subject matter expert because they don't understand They know it so well, they can't see the blind. You know, they've got so many blind spots about how confusing some of this stuff is to new people. Yeah. You know, because it's so obvious to them, right? I've started doing things like, okay, so you're telling me, you know, having a good why statement in your Six Sigma thing is really important. How long did it take you to get good at that? Mm. They're like, oh, okay, wow. Well, it probably took me a couple of years of this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, now... Now, we're not talking about doing this in a half-hour webinar. We're talking about it took you a couple of years. And we right. want to shorten that. You know, like that's what my job is, is to help you figure out how do we condense that so that it doesn't take you three years before this person can craft good why statements. But I I at least have taken the, we just need to do a half-hour webinar kind of off the table at that point. And we right. we can start to talk about, okay, well, what experiences did you have that really help make it real for you to learn that. And they're like, oh wow, we well, you know I we were doing this thing where we'd all kind of talk about our projects and we'd do these roundtables and I'd hear about other people's projects too and then I'd learn what you know and I'm like, okay great, that's let's talk about that experience so like project sharing and kind of comparing a bunch of different examples was really helpful. Fantastic. Let's now let's look at can we bring that into you know a learning design so that we're doing that efficiently but not necessarily skipping over some of the really crucial pieces that were part of developing that muscle of, sure. you know, expertise and things like that.
0: I have a quick question for you here. In sure. user experience work, we talk about that in terms of user journey or their sort of experience mm-hmm. and, you know, getting through the process. And I think in learning, it's very similar. There's, there's a learning journey. Of sorts, right? mm-hmm. It requires an invitation of sorts for the learner to find yep. their footing in, in the learning ground. Um, Do do you address it that way, or are you just? Sometimes
1: we're starting to see a little bit of journey mapping showing up in learning design, and and there's some different ways that you kind of get that. I think we could do better with it. Uh Honestly, I think there's a lot of really nice stuff that's happening in some of the journey mapping and user experience design that I think would be good. Just making more deliberate choices. Like one of the tools that I will frequently use is looking at different parts of a learning journey. So, is there any kind of pre learning activity that would be helpful? You know, mm-hmm. it might be looking for some case examples in your own world or identifying some problems, or it might be just watch this video, or it might be just read this article or whatever. Then, what kinds of learning activities and the learning activities match up to is it knowledge, is it skills, is it habit, is it motivation, is it procedural? You know, different kinds of things. Ha- mm-hmm. I, I match up different learning activities. Then how are people going to practice or get direct experience? And how does that happen? How are they going to get coaching, mentoring, feedback, some kind of, am I doing this right? What do I need to correct? How do I need to adjust? Then I look at performance tools and just in time learning, it could be, you know the decision tree support tool, it could be whatever. Mm-hmm. Then we also look at refresh, which if you haven't so for example, if you mm-hmm. learn CPR, you do you do a recertification. Yeah. I think it's two years now or something. Yeah. And re-up. so if it's if it's something infrequently used, you're gonna need a refresh at some point to kind of redo it. And then how do they develop further? And so that's usually a map that I'm looking at mm-hmm. across and mm-hmm. you don't need every single thing for every single you know, some stuff if it's if it's software, you maybe need the learning activity, you need a little practice, and you need support tools and you're golden, that's all yeah. you need. But if it's a complex skill, you know, like determining exactly what kind of user research we need to do for a particular project, then you might have all of those things and yeah. really want to kind of think and be deliberate about that. So yes. And I think it's I think the journey mapping, you know, is a really nice tool in UX. I, I very much appreciate that UX I think has has evolved and iterated like user research and some of the design tools more than my field has. And so mm-hmm. I want there to be more kind of cross-pollination between those.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the learning continuum you. Mm -hmm. Just wonder if you could share that with our listeners.
1: Yeah, that's what I was sort of talking about at the beginning, which is Mm -hmm. if you think about where does the knowledge live in order to best support performance, Mm -hmm. it really is this kind of continuum. So for example, let's say I'm taking identifying risk factors for money laundering. Which is a topic that financial people have to learn about, right? A lot of times, that might take the form of a class where I take, send you off to class and you learn about money laundering, right? And they mm-hmm. tell you about the different kinds of money stages of money laundering and what the red flags are and things like that. And then when you put back into the world, I might put some stuff, some resources that are close to you there, where if you see this red flag, here's the little resource that you can go to on the company internet that'll tell you what do you need, you know, mm-hmm. what do you sh- what should you use to double check that red flag and what do you need to do about it right. So I'm I'm not gonna assume you're gonna remember everything in your head, but I'm gonna I'm going to need you to remember the red flag well enough to know to go out and look on the internet for the rest of the information in order to evaluate that red flag and maybe escalate it or do the thing. Um, But then I might have something that just sits at the side of your screen that's kind of a constant resource like this that's related to money laundering. So, as you're going through, you've got it right there and you don't even have to go like necessarily look for it. TurboTax used to be really good at this where Mm -hmm. it would have these resources over in the column about doing taxes. And they'd be asking you the questions and guiding you through the process. But in case you needed a little bit of extra information about the child credit or whatever, it's right sitting right over there. And it's super, super accessible, super close to Mm -hmm. the point. And then you get things like microcopy, right? Where this is a little bit of information or intelligence that I'm going to put right into the system, as opposed to even making it a learning thing, like this is not common as one. I now look for these things all over the place, but you would see it as you're filling out a tax form, you'll occasionally get a parenthetical note that sort of says, this is not common because mm-hmm. you're like, I don't know. What's this weird thing? This such and such act of 1968. I don't know if I need that. Oh, okay. This is not common. I'm going to keep moving and assume it's okay. <laughs> you know, things like that all the way into... We figured out ways for the AI to identify flags for money laundering that are better and more reliable yeah. than trying to expect the humans to do it. And so we have, by and large, as an organization, decided that the, you know, that running the running the queries and filters are going to give us most of the instances about money laundering red flags. And we don't need to necessarily train people. Of course, yeah. I'm never a fan of um, entirely trusting the system. Right. But theoretically, that information could live anywhere from entirely embedded into somebody's head to entirely embedded in the system. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've sort of done is we've kind of arbitrarily created this little dotted line and we say, if it's on this side of the continuum, it's the problem of training people and learning and development. And if it's on this side of the, the continuum, it's the problem of like UX designers and systems God. people. And so... That line is a weird one because Mm -hmm. I think especially as you move closer to where does the information need to live, that it would benefit from having a little bit more of that conversation between the two domains, right? Are we going to train this or are we going to put something in the system because maybe we don't have the ability to make the system change because it's a big one and it's a problem, so we need to rely on training, but they're kind of not talking to each other very much, and so I would love to see... A little bit more awareness of yep. that question. Where does the information need to live to support performance the best?
0: Yeah, I imagine in some of your implementations or, or your consultations that uh, knowledge bases and knowledge management systems play a big role in either where you might go to query or, or how, <laughs> how the information needs to be stored or
1: disseminated. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And some are very successful and others aren't. And we get into this issue of system adoption because I've been around plenty and I mean... Knowledge management has been a conversation that's been, you know, actively existing in the world since the 90s. And there are mm-hmm. lots of failed versions of this, mm-hmm. where huge repositories of information were built, and not a, all of it got used. But then you look at certain things, and like, you know, Wikipedia is amazing. Like, yeah. it's, you know, and I mean, it wasn't a small amount of effort to make it amazing, but it really is this sort of remarkable tool. There were you know, the internal wiki was a super popular thing for a while, right? I think that was maybe the early 2000s, where everybody was going to have an internal wiki and people were just going to keep it updated. And then it turned out that nobody had time for that. And so you You'd have a big push the first couple of months, and then you'd have this sort of derelict, moribund Wikipedia, you know, (laughs) it's right up there with Second Life campuses and stuff like that, where, you know, the virtual tumbleweeds could kind of blow through. And so trying to figure out what's the version of that that really genuinely works... And what's, what are the roles in the maintenance about mm-hmm. it? Like mm-hmm. learning communities are a big deal. And when they work, they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And when they don't work, they're annoying. And there has been an emphasis on the technology for it and not enough on what is facilitating a learning community look like and what are the different roles and things like that. I, I usually point to Amy Jo Kim's Community Building for the World Wide Web because mm-hmm. we were still calling it that or something. You know, we're still... Talking about the World Wide Web at the time, sure. but it's an older book, and the technology is older in the example, but the principles and the roles and the functions of a learning community are still very relevant because that stuff doesn't change. You know, right. that's that's humans and how it's they like function human together. Behaviors
0: around mm-hmm. knowledge management. Yeah, yeah and it, it's coming, it comes up, you know, as we. Build new repositories, uh, like insight mm-hmm. repositories for researchers, and how do you ritualize, you know, the the utilization of that so that the data itself is valuable, that it's meaningful, yep. and getting mm-hmm. in and out in, in ways that are benefiting everybody. Yeah, and so for knowledge management in general, like, to, do you talk a little bit about like the the ritualization or the culture of use aspects of it?
1: Yeah, sometimes. I mean, one of the big ones is the best learning communities are ones where people are um, putting things into it and sharing and putting their experience in and things like that. There's a, the biggest learning community in my environment is probably, it's this website called eLearning Heroes. One of the biggest vendors for eLearning software is this company called Articulate and they have things Mm -hmm. like Articulate storyline and rise and these tools. But they have always had a tremendous community where lots and lots of people will come and ask questions and answer questions and post examples and things like that. And so, like, the software is fine. It's perfectly good software. But their real superpower, I think, has been in fostering that learning community. Mm -hmm. When I've talked to Tom Coleman, who's run that, he talks about it's that percentage, right? Like, 90% of people are just going to show up and kind of consume. Um, mm-hmm. 10% may actually contribute and add that 10%, you know, two to 3% are going to your like your super contributors and things like that. And so yeah. how do you kind of create good experiences at each tier of that so that you're and looking for your bright spot contributors and encouraging that and supporting them and whether it's giving them access to things that their regular population doesn't have, or whether it's just some kind of acknowledgement of it. You know, there's a bunch of different strategies that you can do around that because yeah, these communities that organically grow up are fascinating to me and the degree to which it really is more of a care and feeding, like it's not a machine that you turn sure. on, it really is a garden that you tend, you know, at risk of oversimplifying analogies, but how does that work and how do you support it? And even with good intentions and good planning and good strategy, it can sometimes just not click in, yeah. you know, people forget to go there, or people don't just think about it, but these are these are all the things you need to consider if you're really sure. trying to foster that.
0: Yeah. C- cultivation, I think it's mm. not a bad meta- metaphor. And it, the more we're, we're leaning heavily on our digital experiences for community, for collaboration, communication, um, and all the behavioral changes that need to sort of come in line with that, I think, oh, thinking through those aspects. Um, very important. Sorry. That's all right. I just wanted to ask yeah. you if there was anything else uh, you had hope to maybe talk about today and I didn't ask you about.
1: Oh gosh, I don't know. I think we have got into some really interesting areas. This is this is really fun because when I'm doing, you know, sort of straight up learning podcasts, we kind of we kind of veer towards a little bit more predictable channels. And so it's been it's been really interesting to to talk to you about this. So yeah, I don't know. I can I can probably keep going, but I'll stop there. How about that? Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your insights. I have the links to your books in the description. You have a website which 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 I'm also linking from the description and uh, your LinkedIn. So people can continue learning from you and with you. Uh, Thanks so much for your time on the show.
1: All right. Thank you.